This week's episode contains binaural recordings. Listen with headphones if you can. Sounds curious. Be my woman, girl, be Stop. Rewind. Let's go someplace nice and peaceful for this conversation. A farm in the Netherlands sounds perfect. Hey there, and welcome back to the Sounds Curious podcast, the podcast for the adventurous listener. Okay, so we're mixing it up again this week. Obviously, I stopped that field recording introduction because we can't go any further forward in our inquiry around field recordings without a little backstory. While we were preparing this episode on schizophonia, a term that I first learned about when I read Stephen Feld's article in the 1996 yearbook for traditional music entitled Pygmy Pop, A Genealogy of Schizophonic Mimesis. Now, that's a lot of big words, and we're going to take that title apart a little bit later on. But before we can begin, I have to tell you that while we were putting together an episode on schizophonia, We had our own episode of Schizophonia. Let me tell you about it. So as we're putting together an episode in which we're outlining what Stephen Feld conceives of in labeling something schizophonic. Now, in his article in 1996, he's talking about a really specific musical style that originated from field recordings made of the Central African forest peoples, what used to be called, the folks who used to be called pygmies. Uh, But there's many different clans of these people. Well, those musical textures and um, styles filtered their way into the music of the Western funk icon Herbie Hancock, and then subsequently found their way to a Madonna track. So as we're researching this, my mind is instantly cast back to my days of teaching world music and the use of a textbook called Worlds of Music, subtitle, An Introduction to the Music of the World's Peoples, edited by Jeff Todd Titan. Anyway, if you've ever been in an academic music department, this is sort of... uh, a typical foundational introduction to world music text. It has its own CD. And on that CD is the track you heard at the opening of this episode, Rosie. Now, when I listen to Rosie, I hear an awful lot. I hear the swing of the hammers on the earth. I hear voices whose timbre reflects the difficulty of that work. I hear a call and response. I hear a caller who has freedom to improvise and a response that is completely limited, a rhythm kept steady because of the needs of the work. 
When this field recording was made, it was made by Alan Lomax in the 1940s in a work camp or a work farm through the Mississippi State Penitentiary. Now, I know this context all too well because it is central to my perception of the music. I know that when Alan Lomax went into that penitentiary, he had ultimate freedom of movement. He could come and go. He was in possession of technology, and he was the one who decided what got recorded and what didn't. The prisoners had no say over any of that. So I've always seen Rosie in a very um, contextualized way. I've always heard it in a very specific place and time in cultural history, chronological history, and musical history. But I went on to use it as an exemplary track of many Western music structural elements in the form and analysis classes that I taught in Western music theory. It's still a little unusual to teach form and analysis using non-Western music, but I often found that by the time my undergraduate students got to their music department, they already had so many preconceived notions about what classical music was that when I tried to teach them how it was put together, they couldn't understand it. So I demonstrated these musical examples using tracks like Rosie. So there are many classical musicians running around now who, as a regular part of their education, learned phrase structure, call and response, repetition, harmony, through Rosie. So this is a field recording that is very near and dear to my heart. Well, in the process of researching this episode on schizophonia, I discovered, much to my dismay, that Rosie was actually quite a YouTube hit. That many, many, many people had listened to it. A little further research showed me why. Because a sample of Rosie was recorded and used in a dance, an EDM hit. Obviously, when I realized that my precious little track that I had known and loved for so long was now a sample in a pop hit, my feelings were complicated. And certainly, my sense of schizophonia hit hard. To have this track stripped of its context meant stripping it of so much of its power, musical and otherwise. And yet, as the discussions raged back and forth here at Banshee Media about the implications of this little sample of Rosie used in a big hit, we of course were so happy that, as a result, millions of people have gone back and listened to the original And that's got to be a good thing, right? In our culture, the more we know about a certain music, the more influential it can become. But is it always good when field recordings made in a very specific context are stripped of that context 
often, like we saw a couple of decades ago with the deep forest recordings and things, where samples of native peoples singing or performing were turned into quick little samples, re-keyed to fit Western tuning, and then played on a Western-style keyboard in an electronic context. Obviously, there's no way that we can understand the richness of a musical tradition in a four-second sample. But I'm happy that more people know Rosie. So, schizophonia, as demonstrated by our own experience, can stall you out a bit. It can ultimately lead to a kind of discomfort. When field recording artists travel to cultures outside their own, or sometimes even cultures within their own, subcultures within our larger cultures, we always have the power to choose what we record and why we record it. But we have no control in the long run over how those recordings will be received, who they might influence, and how they might be used. And so, in the old school sense of field recordings, from the ethnography sense, my earliest understanding of field recordings, given my academic background, they are a complicated political landscape. Now, For many people listening to me talk about field recordings, this idea of field recordings as ethnography, as documenting musical practice, is unheard of and ridiculous. For many of us, especially in the last two decades, field recordings has become a kind of catch-all term in which we basically describe anything that is recorded outside of a concert hall or a recording studio. But that's an entire world of recordings made by many different kinds of recordists for many different purposes, using many, many different kinds of technology. So we begin talking about schizophonia this week because we want to begin with the complicated terrain that can sometimes accompany the term field recording. And we want to open it out.
To see it stripped of that context and run through the Western pop music influence mill, I suppose would be a good way to put it, Um, to see time and again how Western pop music is able to take the music of the world's peoples, repackage it, repurpose it, and resell it for their own commercial gain. Now, there's good reasons and bad reasons that came up in this episode of Schizophonia. My partner in Banshee Media and I talked back and forth about feeling really uncomfortable that this tiny sample was included in a pop tune that didn't even include the sounds of the hammer, the work that was being done in the track, so integral to my own experience of it that stripped away the magic of the spontaneity and the improvisation and forced it into an electronic grid and yet it was a top reddit world music hit because people went back and listened to the original so i had to be happy that more people loved the track that i loved right i don't know Now, from the days of Bella Bartok dragging his early wax cylinder recording equipment through southeastern Europe, and there are some wonderful photographs we're going to include in the show notes that were taken when Bella Bartok was recording this kind of folk music industry in the small villages, and folks would show up in costume and sing into his recording equipment. And these recordings deeply influenced his own music. Ever since the early 20th century, there is an ambiguity at the base of all field recordings. Because regardless of the good intentions of the people who make them and the good intentions of the people who share them, they're going to get repackaged, repurposed, and resold by Western artists. Now you say, hey, you're a composer. Don't you have the right to use any of the influences that speak to you in your music? And as a composer, I want to say yes. But as a human and as a theorist and as a scholar who thinks about what we're doing and why we're doing it for whom and under what circumstances and ultimately you know who gets paid i have to believe that i owe responsibility to the people whose music 
has revolutionized my own internal life. That I owe them the respect of their own context. Now, you can see there's no easy answers here. We're happy that Rosie is a big hit and there's millions of views on YouTube and this has revived interest in work songs and field recordings made in prisons back in the day. And at the same time, we sit here, at the same time we love it, we feel ourselves culpable in a larger system of late capitalism where everything is ultimately removed from its context, repackaged and resold. And as podcasters, we're in that mix. So we invite you to uneasily listen to some of the examples. And we're going to deepen this conversation in future episodes. We are rightfully opening up many more questions in these early episodes than we ever hope to answer.
Okay, so getting back to Stephen Feld's article, again published in 1996 in the Yearbook for Traditional Music, and I will link to a PDF copy of the article in the show notes over at www.bansheemedia.com. Anyway, this particular article I read years ago in graduate school, and it made a strong impression on me. It's one in which this scholar takes on the idea of what happens when we here in the West, because this article is published in the West, what happens when ethnomusicologists, ethnographers, field recording artists go and make field recordings of folks who don't generally have access to field recording technology. So for instance, when an ethnographer shows up like Alan Lomax at the Mississippi State Penitentiary, when he goes in and records the songs that they're singing to document that musical practice in the world, there's absolutely no way that he as an ethnographer is in the same position as those prisoners who are singing as a part of their daily routine because they're in prison. Um, The ethnographer can walk in and out, can come and go. Uh, The prisoners can't. The same can be said when Western scholars go to places and make field recordings in non-Western cultures. It doesn't really matter what our intentions are when we make those field recordings. They're going to be interpreted all on their own. They are going to have a life far beyond whatever the initial field recording artist might have intended them for. This article by Stephen Feld, in essence, tracks the musical movement across cultures of some recordings made by an ethnographer of the songs of the central, of the forest people of the Central African region. So essentially the forested regions of Central Africa feature a number of tribes of forest people. They used to be called pygmies um, because they had a relatively diminutive stature with regard to the colonial explorers who named them that. So Stephen Feld calling this article Pygmy Pop, a genealogy of schizophonic mimesis, is really foregrounding this issue that, in essence, we can go and record peoples in the forests of Central Africa But then we have no control over how those recordings are received, what happens to them, and how they're interpreted by the broader culture. So regardless of our intentions as field recording artists sometimes, whether it be documentation or creative exploration or even a drive to create realistic sonic environments of landscapes that we've interpreted. In this article, Stephen Feld outlines a particular example of the American artist Herbie Hancock using a field recording made in a Central African Republic by the forest people to create one of his 
biggest hits on the album Headhunters. And he traces this lineage through pop culture for a while and goes into depth about a lot of issues that we brought up last time. And I want to quote from this article. This is um, on page 11 of the original journal in the central paragraph. um, And he brings up the concept of schizophonia, but then he very shortly thereafter explains it. So the paragraph reads, quote, there is an obvious connection here between first-hand research, the production of field recordings, and the stylistic analyses that spring from them. But don't these activities also create the basic conditions for renegotiations of the sounds as recorded and presented? Doesn't research rationalize schizophonia? This conclusion may be uneasy for researchers to swallow, but it is a critical reality that must be acknowledged. The intention surrounding a recording's original production, however positive, cannot be controlled once a commodity is in commercial circulation. Both as tokens of academic and of marketplace authenticity, documentary field recordings have served to validate very diverse agendas, many of which were unanticipated and may now be unwelcome or distasteful to the recordists or those recorded. This is a position of considerable anxiety for some researchers, particularly those who carried out recording projects according to what they, and in many cases their interlocutors, considered optimistic, idealistic, or even politically anti-imperial or anti-racist goals. Nonetheless, anthropologists and ethnomusicologists have no moral high ground here, no convenient outside position. Unwittingly or not, they, we, have been central players in creating a global schizophonic condition whose consequences are now vastly more complex and open to contestation than any of its participants could have anticipated." Now, that's a really powerful paragraph for pointing to the kinds of complexities that accompany every part of the process in creating field recordings, all of the decisions that we make in what we record and why we record it, where we record it, with what technology and under what context. Many recordings over most of the 20th century were sort of made along this model. And certainly the Lomax archives, which are now online, and we will link to those in the show notes as well. You can go explore the field recordings of Alan Lomax yourself, and you can interact with them, much like we were discussing last week with Radio Appery. You can interact with them on a geomap, so you can go to a satellite image of the Earth, choose a region that's highlighted, and listen to the field recordings that Alan Lomax made in that area. So now, all that's said about how field recording artists can't control how their recordings are interpreted or used again, regardless of what their original intentions were. Part of that really comes from the fact that in the old days of ethnographic music recording, it was essential for a scholar to go out and make firsthand recordings of various kinds of musical practices and then bring them back after this research is complete and transcribe them into Western musical notation. So if we take a second to think about that 
implication and that's certainly one that comes up in the Stephen Feld article and it's certainly one that's implied in a lot of our Western musical sources Uh, that article quotes the New Grove Dictionary of Music and Musicians which anyone with an undergraduate degree in music will know all too well Uh, or of course New Grove Online but that's another story anyway the foundational reference books in musicology would insist that whatever music you captured quote-unquote in the wild had to come back and be transcribed into Western notation. Never mind that Western notation really only accounts for pitch and rhythm, register, not a lot. So along with the binaural microphone technology that's really allowed us to up our game in portable spatialization of field recordings in the last decade and a half or so, we've also really shifted our focus away from only recording those things that have a possibility of getting transcribed into Western musical notation. And this has opened up a whole world of possibilities when you no longer have to fit pitches and rhythms that are awkward in our system into that system so that they can be analyzed and interpreted. When you have to fit your field recordings into that primary function, you're gonna miss a whole world of sounds that may be much more important to our experience of being humans and being alive on this planet right now. Part of the reason that I go visit these field recording sites is because I can't always travel myself. And when I can, I make my own field recordings and happily upload them. And when I'm not, I go here through other people's ears. So in coming episodes, we're going to look at a whole proliferation of field recording genres and sources. And we're going to look at all sorts of places they are on the web. And the reason that we are going to talk about technology and field recording retreats and workshops and new categories of field recording, like creative field recordings, is because we want to extend this fundamental idea of schizophonia, the way in which recordings are created, interpreted, and filter their way through the culture out in a whole bunch of directions, not just looking at the ways in which the old school ethnomusicology field recordings were interpreted by Western artists, but also what are the implications of all these other kinds of environmental recordings, sound art, particularly those that are synced to geographical information. So are part of our own sonic cartography, the way that we are populating our sonic landscape, no longer just in the old school sense of hearing unusual or exotic examples of human musicking. 
but to extend that schizophonically to human sounding. The way that we are populating our geography, virtual and physical, with a microphone, a recording device, and a speaker.
So part of what I love about this field recording by Bruce Miller, uh, and again, we'll have links to all these pieces in the show notes, this sitar and tabla duo, it's obviously a field recording that was designed to capture a musical performance, right? I mean, it starts just before the sitar and it ends when they're done. But it's also obvious if you're listening with headphones and if you've been listening to the rest of the show about spatialization and immersion and stuff that we're not in a concert hall when we are listening to this field recording. We are in a restaurant. Uh, Everybody seems to be eating and laughing and talking and there's traffic. And I know that were this to be brought back to the West for ethnographic analysis, ethnomusicological analysis, 60 years ago they would have transcribed the musical details but how could they have captured the traffic noise the sound of diners the sort of odd and unusual way that since this particular recording artist is sitting very close to the percussionist the bayan of the tabla when i listen to this recording with my headphones it sounds like the tabla player is playing around on my brainstem. Uh, it seems like the lowest one is uh, pretty close to the microphone and obviously the natural limiter is giving it a kind of extra percussive feel so having access to the recording instead of a transcription or an analysis or an interpretation means that I get to hear all the ways in which the environment is not perfect during a musical performance of any kind that if it's out in the world among people it's gonna have traffic noise and plane noise and people talking and I don't feel like I need to get away from that in my field recordings they're not a far away place anymore when Bella Bartok or Alan Lomax were making their recordings the world was an impossibly huge place And our ability to hear the music of people from distant lands at the drop of a hat just didn't exist. We needed to purchase collections of field recordings. And people wanted their money's worth, so they were going to try and make them as perfect as possible. You know, no traffic, no airplanes, no sirens. No miking the percussionist just a little bit too much. They wanted to make sure that it all sounded perfect. But as we know, the world is not perfect. So maybe one of the biggest innovations in field recordings in the last 15 years is the shift away from representing something that is distant to representing something that is just a click away now that we understand we can immerse ourselves in field recordings we understand that those places are not very different from our own so maybe when we hear field recordings in 2016 and we hear the clapping and the participation in a musical life. Maybe we simply don't have the ears to hear them the way they would have been heard 
1950 or 1960 or 1903. Maybe what we want from our field recordings is why our field recordings are no longer so formal. Maybe it's this growing awareness that the world is much smaller and much bigger than we realized. And we want to hear all of it, the imperfections. We want to be able to place ourselves there, imagine ourselves in the shoes of our fellow humans. So maybe field recording has gotten so diverse because what we want to hear is so diverse, is diversifying more and more and more every day. So maybe the things that we're looking to are recordings of the world to allow us to hear are expanding as quickly as our technologies and means for recording and distributing all of those recordings. Maybe field recording has gotten so expansive because our desire to hear the world has gotten so expansive. We'll catch you next time.